0: Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks T O X N O W dot O R G, and follow us at our Twitter feed at TalksNow. So, same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Tox Talk.
1: Hi, this is Stephanie Weiss. I'm a second-year resident at the UMass Emergency Medicine Residency Program.
0: And this is Matt Zuckerman, a second-year fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology in the Department of Emergency Medicine.
1: We have a special guest today for our podcast, which is on international toxicology. I had a patient come in with an unusual overdose on a medication I was not at all familiar with called Dorflex, and this patient was a young man from Brazil, and I really wasn't sure what to do about this, and so being a good resident, and I went on Google and searched for it and found out that it is a combination of three different medications— One is caffeine, one is uh, an antihistamine, and one is an NSAID that's not available in the U.S. called metamazole. That drug was banned in the U.S. uh, for the past 30 years, and it's unlikely to be familiar with to most American physicians, so I thought it would be really helpful to have the author of the article that I read about it come and talk to us on this podcast. His name is Dr. Anthony Wong, and He's a very interesting person in his own right. He was the first director of Brazil's poison control system, and he has also worked for the WHO. He's involved with government drug policy and regulations in Brazil. He serves as a consultant for pharmaceutical industry. He's involved with analytical chemistry drug lab work.
0: Yeah. So I think this is a great kind of phone a friend segment. It's something that we wish we all could do when we see somebody who comes in with, uh, you know, a pill bottle from another country or grandma's imported medications. And it's something that a lot of us, I think, end up turning to, uh, to Google. And it's definitely a shortcoming with our, you know, our system of drug managing, which is based on FDA and micromedics and up to date and things. And, uh, so this was a great opportunity to go the extra step and sort of phone a friend in Brazil. And if you like this, um, uh, then let us know and we'll try and do more because there's definitely toxicology around the world. That being said, we, uh, we called Dr. Wong on a, uh, on a telephone via Skype call. So please forgive some of the connection quality. We tried to clean it up as much as possible. And without further ado, here's the phone call.
2: Alan.
3: Hi. My name's Stephanie Weiss. I'm trying to reach Dr. Anthony Wong, please.
2: meet you, please. Okay. Uh,
3: Dr. Wong? Yes. Hi, Dr. Wong. This is Stephanie Weiss. I'm the resident from Massachusetts who is emailing you.
2: Yes, yes, yes. i I was awaiting your call.
3: Okay, great. Do you have some time to talk right now? Yes. Okay. That's so-
0: why I'm here. <laughs> great, thank you. I appreciate it. And, and hi, Dr. Wong. This is Matt Zuckerman. I'm one of the Tox Fellows. Okay, great. Well, what I would like to what I would like to do then is just briefly
3: explain that I, because I had a case. This was actually a year ago now of a patient who had taken Dorflex, which I'd never heard of before, and it was a young man from Brazil. Yep. And basically, I started looking up some information about it on the internet, yeah. and then that's how I found an article written by you, and and found out about you and wanted to talk to you about it right? and thought it would be interesting to have you uh, tell us about Dorflex and just mm-hmm. uh, giving advice because this is not available in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so just some advice for American physicians dealing with uh, patients who may be taking medications from their, their home countries.
2: Right. Uh, no problem. I'd be very happy to talk to you. But look, uh, evidently no problem that we have, uh, we have both ways. Uh, about using medication, uh, sometimes I get patients coming from the United States with uh, certain names or brands that are very different from the ones that we have here. Uh It's not all medications uh, that are um, registered by the FDA in the U.S. is uh, automatically registered in Brazil. Uh, in the past, uh, very clear and very close past, I was one of the consulting members of Anvisa, and these A N D I S A, which is the Brazilian FDA. And uh I was on consulting uh saying whether some medication should be registered here, whether it came from Europe, Japan, or the US. And i would be very happy to, uh, for you if you have any questions, uh send me an email, shoot me an email and I'll try to answer as soon as possible about any uh medication that you have coming from Brazil. It's a quiet from Massachusetts, right? Correct. Yeah, there's a big Brazilian community there I know, and uh so they're probably taking medications, home medications that they trust. Uh, basically, about Dorflex, there are uh, three components, as you know, caffeine, uh, dipyrone, and ofenadrine. Okay? hmm I'm pretty sure you're of course, you're familiar with caffeine, but so that's not a problem. Right. Ofenadrine, you know what that is?
3: Yes, it's an antihistamine.
2: Uh, since it's this, this medication, Dorflex, is registered by Spanofi, which is a French company. And so, uh, a is, uh, available in Europe too. And, uh, that pound is a, an analgesic. And, uh, it had been used in the United States before 19, in the 1970s, before the 1970s. And then, uh, the FDA did not re-register it. It is a very potent and very effective antipyretic and an analgesic. Um, it belongs to, uh, methamizol, a group of, uh, uh, of, uh, medications, uh, known as metamizole. Um, and, uh, there's been a lot of talk that it does may cause, uh, This was done by a study, study being from United the States, and this caused quite a, quite a stir at the time. And then, of course, the company that had its registration was the FISH, did an ongoing study, a, a follow-up study later in Europe with over 11 million people. And they came with the Boston City.
3: Can you tell us about that?
2: huge city uh, of uh twenty three million people in the in Europe and eleven cities in Europe and uh Jerusalem. uh that where that part was registered at the time, and they came up with very different numbers uh while the uh, study performed in the United States came like one in um i think seven hundred patients. Uh, the, the, this, this huge study, uh, came up with a figure of one in one million doses, uh, by granocytosis. And for this reason, it has not, was not, was continued though, know, in several cities in, uh, in, in, several countries in Europe. There's still some, uh, discussion about that. And then, further, later on, so, uh, what happened is that they discovered that the study, two gentlemen from the United States, is that they used, uh, they, pay, they 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 base their studies on uh, three studies with a lot of other uh, derivatives of dipyrone. it's got the same nuclei nucleus as the dipyrone, except that it's got a different toxicity.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's much like you comparing uh, acetaminophen with phenacetin. A similar thing as you know, is palanol. Right. is also a derivative, a uh, very similar Tylenol, except that it causes spinal you know, problems. And they're basically, very similar drugs. In fact, one is the of the other. Okay? And that's the same thing with butalizodone and dipron. Dipron is very safe, but butalizodone has been known to cause, uh, hematological problems. So when you get these, so, uh, just saying that, in our experience with that count is that it's very versatile. The incidence of granulocytosis is one per million doses. So, very small. Uh, other studies have shown that, uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, acetaminophen has a greater incidence of granulocytosis.
3: That acetaminophen has a greater incidence of a- agranulocytosis?
2: Wow. It comes up like something like One per million, one per million doses for uh, aspirin, and for uh, acetaminophen, acetaminophen will be about one per nine hundred or per eight hundred thousand doses.
0: Wow, I didn't realize that. Do you commonly see this type of overdose in your practice?
2: Well, no, it's not common. Uh, People don't usually use that uh, as an overdose, like as uh, ox- uh, different from oxycodone or something like that. Uh, it, it is it is part of the, uh, people have it at home. It's an OTC, so you have it at home. And uh, but I don't, we don't really commonly see overdose with that pound. It, but it does happen, but it's not a very common thing.
3: Can people buy that over the counter, or do they have to have a prescription?
2: No, Norflex an OTC, over the counter drug.
0: And then one question, you had briefly mentioned emailing you if we had a question about a Brazilian overdose, but I was just wondering um, if there's any particular reference that you find useful internationally if you have somebody who overdoses on a drug from another South American country or something else. We typically use drug databases that are very country-specific.
2: Well, what did you, what we do do is, uh, if I, if I, for example, I'm not sure what a medicine is, uh, what, what the compound or what are the constituents of a particular drug, uh, in Brazil, I go to Google BR and then I find out what that, that brand, what's the constituents of that brand. Okay? Uh, we do not have a national database. Alright? What we can do is try to go into a visa, uh, and that's WW, W. Uh That is the uh, F Brazil's FDA, but it's a very complicated procedure. So in Portuguese, and then for you to find out exactly what the com- constituents of that or any particular brand drug is made of, I take about fifteen minutes to find that out. So it's easier for me to go to Google, or uh, uh, there's one, there's a Google, there's a, a database. It is not really perfect. It's www.def.com.br. It's a uh, publication much like the PDR in the States. Okay, and then sometimes you can, uh, you'll find some of the information on, 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 on the drugs by from its brand name. It doesn't give much of information. It's very, most of the uh, constituents it's really telegraphic. They'll say, like, for example, Dorflex. they only come up with the, uh, constituents, but it won't say how much, con- what is the right concentration. I apologize for that, but we have not been able to get any company or person interested in giving, putting up, uh, the, putting up in a way that we can really find out what it, what are the concentration of doses.
0: No, that, that makes, that makes sense. I think that's a problem internationally in a lot of different countries. And unfortunately, in the United States, we get spoiled by our regulations, and we we have access to micromedics and other other databases. And it's hard internationally. That's right. Um, I apologize.
2: Uh, we we've, we've tried it with many people, other countries, are many companies trying to do that, but they've never been able to come up with all the the components. Uh, sometimes I use uh, no, I don't. There wasn't a. a there's another database called com.br. It's a better database, you know, but it, uh, it's not always as updated as uh, the def here.
3: Is that also in Portuguese?
2: Yeah, you, you know, I say the kind of you know. You, <laughs> you can read. We, we, we read English, but uh, you don't read other languages.
3: No, that's very true. I speak Spanish, but I don't speak Portuguese. But I can understand some when people speak. Can you a little bit about yourself and how you got into toxicology and how you started with the poison control centers and your government work in Brazil?
2: Okay. Well, I graduated from uh, the, the University of São Paulo School of Medicine in 1972, and I did my started my residency in pediatrics in 1973. When I was in my second year of residency, the full professor of pediatrics, uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're not going to do, uh, second year residency. I said, well, why not? He says, well, because I want you to, to be one of the members of the intensive, pedi- pediatric intensive care unit. To be a, one of the, uh, pioneers of the pediatric intensive care. So I started doing intensive care with, uh, eight other fellows. Co- uh, colleagues, we started from scratch because even in the United States, PICUs were not very common. It was very little thing to, 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 to get experience from. So I was doing a parent intensive care, and I was as I was going into that. Another fell another uh, professor decided to open a poison control center in Brazil, much like the PCCs in the United States. So uh, in 1974, uh, June of 1974, I became one of the, uh, uh, members of this, uh, uh, poison control center in Sao Paulo, which actually was the I, was first poison control center in all of Latin America. Wow. So I was doing two things. I was doing PICU and PCC. Uh, in my second year as a, as a member of the PCC, the, for the director of the, Dr. Strassman, who was the, uh, head of the poison center, he had to retire because he had a similar position. So me, he appointed me, at the age of 29, 20, 29 that i be head of the Poison Control Center in Buffalo. And as you know at the time, in the United States, also the Poison Control Center depended only on the, uh, files from the National Clearinghouse of Substances.
0: Yes, yes. Everyone just had cards.
2: Those cards, right, those file cards. And which was terrible because there you are know, like a few thousands of them, and you had to go through them, and of course they're in English, but my English i started English from school, so that was not tough. And um, that's how we started the Poison Control Center. And then with time, uh, that became the leading poison I mean we were the only one and then we were the reference to all the other poison control centers in Brazil.
0: Now did you find did you find that you were getting calls from outside Brazil given that you were a limited resource in South America?
2: Well, we did sometimes. We see telephones in nineteen and nineteen seventies International telephones in the 1970s was uh, terrible. You know, you know, we didn't have satellites, etc. All were cable, but we did get, uh, we did sometimes get faxes and and telegrams from Venezuela, some from Argentina, and then uh, with time we, they started opening a international collaboration with uh, Argentina and Chile and Uruguay and Brazil, especially. And some from Venezuela at the time. Uh but it usually was only by fact, very little by telephone. Uh and then uh in nineteen in the uh late nineteen seventies, uh a poison control was opened in uh, one of the states here, Puerto Uh de Sousa. they opened another one in, in Bahia, Salvador, and another one opened in, in Rio. And then we started a network here of, of poison centers in Brazil. And this has been developing, et cetera. And so today we have 35 poison control centers in Brazil. Almost every state has one. Not every state has it, but uh, just about every one of them. São Paulo, São Paulo, where I am, has uh, nine poison control centers. Oh. Wow. Well, so that's a that's a rarity because most only have one. Uh, we are not as as uh, united as you are, but there are uh, there is a the entity that. Uh, that sort of congregates all the poison centers. Uh, we get meetings like every other every other year, uh, so we exchange views. But it's we're not as united and as strong as the American, associate, uh, American Association.
0: And do you find that most of your calls are from individuals or from healthcare providers?
2: Uh, I would say about fifty percent are from healthcare providers, and forty percent from home. Because probably like in the United States, most physicians are not familiar with toxicology. They know hardly anything about pharmacology. And so anything that happens, they call us. And uh, But our calls are not as numerous as the United States because many doctors think that they can treat uh, uh, poisoning. Uh, but mo- the most important thing is that most doctors, and since toxicology is not taught in any of the other schools, uh, they don't. Think of poisoning as a cause of disease. They usually think, oh, this child is, oh, he's, he's got, he's a little sleepy. Well, probably because he's got some virus or something like that. Or even if it's a little bit of poisoning, he thinks, oh, it'll go away by itself. He doesn't know how to go through the procedures, the the normal procedures for identifying a drug.
0: So do you think that toxicology is, so do you think that toxicology is gaining recognition in your region as, as, Sort of, you're doing this this uh, poison control work and and raising awareness.
2: I think that we are uh, we are we're really it is getting more and more relevant. People are getting even more and more important. The only school that has a formal course of you know, clinical toxicology is my school, School of Medicine, University I mean, because I sort of foster that. Others only have it as an optional course, or they take it along. Um, if sometimes the kid, the, the, the students pass by. The pediatric department, or you know, there's somebody that's interested in toxicology, but there's no formal course. The for- only formal course that I know of is the University of Sao Paulo. I think it is getting more relevant because people are getting more and more aware because more in the newspaper, mm-hmm. and so people more you come know, kind of think that it could be poisoning, but it's still mm-hmm. not as uh, relevant or as important as the United States. Uh, you are much more organized because all your all the hospitals have some type of diagnostic system. You have micromedics in every place. Well, here I think that there's only a handful of schools or or, or or entities that use some type of database.
3: Anthony, are most of the toxicologists in Brazil coming from a pediatrics background? Because here it's possible to do it from a pediatrics background, but most of our toxicologists come from an emergency medicine background.
2: Uh, I would say. <clears throat> Getting the the group that has formed the toxicology centers, uh, you'd be surprised. But most of the heads of the poison control centers here, about a third of them are pharmacists. About maybe about 20% have a pediatric background. Uh, About 40% have uh, some type of clinical background. And of these clinical backgrounds, maybe half of them would have some emergency background. All right? And others are persons that deal with snakes. It's better because they come from the north and northeast of Brazil. And in those places, uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, of uh, venomation from uh, snakes and, and uh, spiders and things like that. So that's pretty widespread. You know, like one of the prison control centers, and one of the most important ones is down in Rio Grande do Sul, the head of that one is a veterinary doctor, not a, not even a clinical doctor.
0: So he or she can treat not just uh, people poisoning, but also animal poisoning.
2: That's right. Yeah. But anyway, because he started studying uh, poisoning and um, with animals, and uh, he got some expertise, so he's the head of the uh, the uh, the department. He's not an MD. He's a like a veterinary doctor. But under his under his supervision, there are other uh, physicians. So. But he he's, you know, it really depends on how, how ambitious you are and how much you can uh, get in influence in getting funds to 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 funds to keep your your center going.
0: Well, and that's that's a big deal here too. One of one of the reasons the poison control centers are so close knit is it seems like every year um, one of them is threatened to be closed because they all they all rely on separate funding from different states, and when there's not enough money, they they threaten to close them, and so. Um there's a lot of fear in a lot of places in the US that uh the poison centers might might close or some of them might
2: close. Yeah, yeah I, I think I think um, um is a is a major uh, way to put it together.
3: Has anyone ever looked in Brazil at uh whether the poison control centers are able to save money ultimately by by stopping people from going to the hospital who might have come otherwise cuz they've done studies here uh, on that topic, that if people call the poison center, then they can get advice and maybe they won't even go to the ER in the first place?
2: Well, absolutely, yes. We, we've done that kind of study in several places, right? We've shown that, it, that the poison centers are important as uh, as um, as a means of avoiding a more serious uh, evolu- uh, course of a poisoning. We have been able to prevent it. But, you know, uh, given the fact that uh, the funds have to come from from the state, uh, they say, oh great, I know that, I said, but I'm not giving you money. So in a way, sometimes, this, uh, some, like for example, in my case, my funding comes because I have a partnership with companies. Companies have to have an emergency or a quick response system. So they use our center as a reference on their, on their, on their packaging. saying, look, if you have a problem, clinical problem, et cetera, call such and such a center and they'll give you immediate assistance. In that way, uh, I, have, I was able to get funds from these companies to pay uh, to fund my center. But it's not—it's not a very common uh, uh, occurrence. The others uh, others that depend on public money, uh, they're always at a, at a point of their lacking, enough you know, funds to 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 help the center get along.
0: Every everyone's trying to figure out a sustainable model to make sure that. That, that things can stay open and continue, and definitely industry yes. um industry support is is one uh, way that it's been looked yes. at um it's It's really fascinating sort of where you've started your career and the various decisions that you've made or have been made for you um, that that led you there
2: yeah well thank you
0: and it's definitely it's been a great opportunity to talk to somebody who's practicing in another country to see that you have some of the same problems, but from the other side
2: yes definitely uh like I said it's always good to be able to to um, to connect with you and you know and add, interact with any center or right? any international tech collaboration because I think we can exchange uh experiences in some ways to help each other uh like I like like in our center i mean since money is always a problem any place but I'll, I'll, by by the way that we we started this it's been such a so successful that we're the approximately uh, the only center. That really does not. One, yeah, probably one or two centers that do not need to rely on know where coming to know where the funds are coming from. Many of my colleagues are always shorthand, shortchanged, and they think that, well, geez, can I survive in the following year, etc. You know, in our case, we've been very lucky, and we have not been we have not been needing uh this type of uh of help. You know.
3: Yeah, that must be a huge relief on your mind.
2: It is. Oh, definitely. I can say that, yes, because I know that every year I can... Uh, can See, a part of the funding really goes... In fact, the money that comes to our center, uh, we've been able to enlist students and train them. I think that's one of the most most important parts in my center is that <clears throat> I have uh, a staff of uh, full-time that covers all 24 hours of call with uh, professionals. They're pharma, uh, they're clinical pharmacists or physicians and they, uh, are, uh, they supervise, uh, three students, either pharmacy students or medical students that take the calls and as they answer the calls, the, ph- the, the uh, person that uh, is on call in, 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 the place, he's not at that place, he's in that room and see if the answer is correct and then helps them train in, uh, patient, uh, in helping, uh, solve the problem. And so I really kind of kill two birds with one stone. I'm, I'm training students and at the same time, they take that harder thing of getting the call, writing it down, jotting it and, and, and registering on the appropriate form so that it's sent to, uh, to a place in, in Rio de Janeiro that uh, collects all the numbers and then sort of comes out with a, uh, some data that is collected every, every year.
0: No, that's, that's really, that's really a great thing that you've developed there, and I'm sure that you're the envy of the others in the region. I think, I think medical student labor slash education is an important part of any, any institution. Um, and we really appreciate you. We know you're really busy and it's getting late there, so we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this particular agent, but then also about some of the strategies that you've done and and some of the development in Brazil's uh, poison control network.
2: Well, thank you for that and uh, i like I said, I'll be always if you need anything I'll be very happy to uh, on that on that note, I would like to know what happened to the guy that did that overdose? Did he survive and all that Did he come out well?
3: Yes, he did survive, so we mainly just treated him symptomatically and uh, he got admitted to the hospital and and did very well
2: Good good and all that Right, and he did not have any hematological problems I mean that guy got cytosis or any type of uh complications from uh, using a substance that could be uh, known uh, as the uh, uh, medullar poison.
3: No, he didn't. And it was really helpful that I saw your your article because I was able to uh, have an idea of what we needed to keep an eye on to look for and communicate that to the inpatient team.
2: Great. Okay. Well, if you need anything, I'll be very, very happy to help in the future. You have my email and my phone. And, uh, I'll be on call, guys.
3: Great. Thank you so much, Anthony. I really appreciate you helping us.
2: Well, I'm very happy to be able to talk to you and, uh, networking with you all. And, uh, like I said, uh, let's keep in touch.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. concludes this episode of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for joining me. Once again, Talks Talk is a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter and get more information about our episodes at our website. That's talkstalk.org, T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. If there's any particular topics you'd like to hear us talk about, just drop a line uh, by going to our website or emailing us at talkstalk at talkstalk.org. This is Matt Zuckerman signing off.